we are by nature imitators. Growing up, I wore long, baggy Sean John jeans and Timberlands with the tongue out and a wife beater, which is a shirt, not an action, and a gold chain around my neck and a hat cocked to the side. You know why? Because Craig did. And I thought Craig was gangsta, and I wanted to be gangsta. <laughs> Craig had a walk, more like a limp. And since Craig had a limp, I had a limp. And by the way, this is not Craig from the movie Friday. Uh, however, I'm a, I am a bit like Smokey in that movie. This was Craig in my hometown. I modeled my behavior after his. I went hard pursuing Craig-likeness. The only difference was Craig went to a, a public school and I went to a strict private school. And lots of people dressed like Craig at Lewisburg High. Nobody dressed like Craig at my preppy private school. And Craig's dad didn't care that he sagged. My dad said, if you don't pull your pants up, I'm going... I can't finish that. It's, it's not Christian. I can't finish it. Craig's dad was fine with a, with a little weed and even getting blitzed. My stepdad was the sheriff of our county and he wasn't having it. Craig's mom thought his walk with a little limp was cute. My mom thought my walk was stupid. She's like, do you have one leg shorter than the other? Because I can fix that for you. I'm like, come on, mom. My dad and stepmom, along with my dad and, and my mom and stepdad, it gets confusing for me too. My, my tree doesn't branch often in North Carolina, but when it does, it's difficult. Um, my mom and stepdad, along with my dad and stepmom, wanted me to find a new model. A new person to imitate. And my brother Jamie, he was always like, man, just be your own man. Don't mimic anyone. Don't imitate him. Weak people imitate others. And you need to be a leader. Now, fast forward a few years. I tasted of grace. God redeemed my wretched soul. I was born again. And I didn't have any person in my family that was a Christian. And I didn't know how Christians were supposed to behave. So I found this church and joined it and started watching my pastor, Dan Walser. He took me under his wing and just naturally I started to walk like he walked and wear what he wore. The only problem with that is I was 16 and he was 67. <laughs> and so I, I got rid of my Timberlands and put on some hush puppies. Uh, only those of you over 40 will know what that is. I, I got rid of my Sean John jeans and began wearing pleated high-water khakis. I ripped off my wife beater and put on a sweater like my Pastor Dan wore. I, I didn't know any other Christians, so I thought this is just how Christians dress. And I went to college and I met my wife Sarah, and she told me, those pleated jeans, they gotta, those pleated khakis, they got to go. And uh, she would borrow my sweaters from time to time so she could sleep in them at the dorm. And it turns out she was throwing them away. And so I'd be like, Sarah, could I get my sweater back? She'd be like, which one? You know, the, the brown and black argyle sweater. Like the one my pastor wears when he goes out to eat at Cracker Barrel. And then that's when she said, you should give greater thought to who you imitate. When it comes to dress, you should not pursue Dan likeness. You know what I did when I became a Christian? I traded one model for another. I stopped imitating one guy and started imitating another. I, I am by nature an imitator. There's a first century guy named 
Paul. He started a church in Philly. Not Philadelphia, but Philly Pie. <laughs> and he since left the church and he's in prison. Paul's in prison not because he did something wrong, but because he did something right. He preached an unpopular gospel. A biblical gospel. And he writes to this fairly young church, 10 years old, filled with young Christians. Much, much like our church, not a lot of people have been walking with Jesus for 40 years. We need more, invite your parents and grandparents. But Paul tells the, the young Christians in verse 17, notice, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eye on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In other words, you need a model. You need to imitate Christians who are further along in their walk with Christ. And, and here's Paul's thought development in the passage. It's, it's um, three, three movements. You need to find good models to imitate. Then you need to avoid imitating bad models. Then there is coming a day when you will no longer need models. You need to find good models to imitate. You need to avoid imitating bad models. There is coming a day when you will no longer need models. We'll take them one at a time. First, you need to find good models to imitate. Notice the first word in verse 17. Brothers. Now, to whom is Paul writing? Brothers. A word that means Christians, men and women. Now, some of you are non-Christians, and, and you need to hear me very clearly. This is not written to you. It's written to the brothers and sisters in Christ. It would be very easy for you to hear the content of this exposition and think, Paul's saying to stop being bad and start being good, and the best way to do that is to find good people and mimic them. And I want to make very clear that that is not the gospel. If that is the gospel, then we're all going to hell. The gospel is that God has loved us at the cost of His Son. And receives us and accepts us not because we've stopped being bad and tried to be good. But because the Lord Jesus Christ lived the life we should have lived. As we sing, died the death we should have died. And rose victorious from the dead on our behalf. We are saved and made into the image of Christ. Not by our efforts to imitate other Christians. Such an act reduces the gospel to mere ethical effort. Paul is not offering an alternative to the gospel. Don't get it twisted. Pursuing Paul-likeness isn't pursuing salvation. Jesus did not come to supplement your goodness, but to save you from your wretchedness. And this entire passage flows out of salvation, not into salvation. You need to know that before going into the text. Verse 17, brothers, join in imitating me. Well, it turns out my brother Jamie was wrong when he said, don't be an imitator. Be your own man. Actually, God through Paul says differently. He doesn't see imitation as a sign of weakness or as a sign of worship. He sees imitation as a good, godly pursuit. But when you step back and you hear Paul saying this, um, how conceited do you have to be to say to someone, you should model your entire life after mine? Paul sounds a bit brash. Sounds like he thinks he has arrived spiritually. There seems to be a tinge of egocentric thought. 
But Paul is basically saying, follow me. Jesus rode up on guys all the time and said, follow me. And you say, yeah, but, but Jesus could say that, Paul can't. Jesus is God and Paul isn't. True. But by Paul saying, follow me, he's saying, follow Christ. The sermon he's preaching in these verses, he's preached before. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He repeats a version of this in Ephesians chapter 5 as well. 1 Thessalonians 1 6, be imitators of us. Paul preached this all the time. Not to non-Christians, but always to Christians. Paul says, I am worthy of emulation because I'm spending my life emulating my Savior. I'm worthy to follow because I'm following Christ. I'm worthy of imitation because I'm imitating Christ. It's completely right for Paul to say, do as I do. Watch me, see how I live, copy me, mimic me, model me. Take me as an example in how you live your everyday life. He even uses the word here, example. It's a Greek word that is like a blueprint to follow in order to build a life worth living. Again, this is not the only time he's used the word. Paul wrote to his protege, Timothy, be an example. And then he repeated himself, be an example. Paul even walks out the categories in which that exemplary living should take place. He says to Timothy, be an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faithfulness, in purity. Live an exemplary life. Why? You're showing other Christians how to live. And church, this may sound intimidating to you. You're like, Kyle, are, are, you, are you about to tell me I'm supposed to live like Paul? Yes. But understand, Paul's not saying imitate my gifts or imitate my calling. You don't copy Paul like I copied Craig. You're wearing sandals because Paul wore sandals. You, you wear a toga because Paul wore a toga. I'm not saying you need to live like Paul to the T. Never get married, travel around the world your whole life, depend on churches for your food and drink, top it all off with some healing miracles. No, I'm saying live this gospel intoxicated life like Paul exemplified. Second half of verse 17. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Turns out, Paul isn't saying follow me only. He's saying now follow us. The us includes Timothy and Epaphroditus who are with Paul and whom Paul had held as high spiritual models in chapter 2. We, we all know that we learn by watching others. Imitation is not a result of the fall. It is a gift of God. You can see it in a little girl disciplining her naughty doll with the same words that mommy uses to correct her. You can see it in a young husband who treats his wife with love and care as his father treated his mother. You see it in a budding artisan watching her mentor mold a lump of clay into a beautiful vase and then she reproduces the master's movements at her own potter's will. 
During my doctoral degree, I read a book entitled On Writing Well by William Zinser. Anyone read that, William Zinser, On Writing Well? Um, he said, Never hesitate to imitate another writer. Imitation is part of the creative process for anyone learning an art or craft. This is how God has designed life to work. And even non-Christians can bear witness to that. We are naturally bent toward imitation. And now we can use that to be a good thing or a bad thing. Car manufacturers and clothing designers and every other retailer bank on that fact. They know it's our nature to copy. It's not only how clothing trends like Sean John jeans were started, but also how accents are developed. Australian kids sound Australian because they mimic their parents. Southerners have a long draw because dad does. Scots forever roll their R's because they listen to Alistair Begg preach. <laughs> Imitation is the only way to explain certain cultural phenomenons like the mullet. Business in the front, party in the back. Um, Imitation is not a result of the fall. The mullet, yes. <laughs> Imitation is not a result of the fall. You say, Kyle, I... Kyle, I don't need a model. I have myself and my Bible, and that's all I need. Individual Christianity. You are wrong. You are overconfident, you are cocky, you are arrogant, and you're either already in deep sin or very close to it. I don't care how gifted you are, how much knowledge of the Bible you think you have, everyone needs a model. I read this week that young Johann Sebastian Bach was actually a studied observer of the great organist and composer Diedrich Buxtehude. Bach would, would make repeated long trips to this man's church and, and hear him and sit at his feet and hear him. Bach, the surpassing genius that he was, rode, he rode on the lesser genius and example of his mentor, his example, his model. And my plea to you from verse 17 is simple. Find models. You need to find examples of people who are not buying into the prevailing wind of worldliness around them. You need to follow them like a beacon light in the midst of a storm. M many of you have never seen a healthy marriage lived out. Find one here, mimic it. Many of you have never seen evangelism done well. <clears throat> if you've been exposed to easy believism or cheesy tests, no. Attach yourself to someone doing it well. Watch them, hang with them, follow them. When I first came to Christ, I did not contribute to my local church right away. I didn't do that. I didn't see the need in it, really. Not until I met Tim Morris and I followed him. Not someone who gave 3% of his income, but someone who gave 30%. This church survives and thrives off of people who don't just tip, but because people who give radically. I have grown. I have grown in my giving by watching some of you give to God's local church. That's the pastor watching. Let's just talk about sin. That's what you all came for, right? Let's talk about sin. 
Are you struggling with a particular sin? Find an example, find a model in our congregation, and they will show you how through the gospel to ruthlessly defeat that sin. Follow those who are showing you what it looks like to live out the Christian life in other ways, including prayer and studying the Bible. Brothers and sisters, we need patterns. Not Argyle patterns, people patterns. It is wise and commanded to watch and learn from faithful examples. All the time I hear people in this church say, I'm following so-and-so in the church. They are my model. You just saw a really good example of that in the baptism. They're teaching me to walk with Christ. Find a Paul, find an Epaphroditus, find a Timothy, and get under them. Now, you, you should imitate faithful examples. However, you should aspire to be one as well. This isn't merely an exhortation to find someone holy to imitate. It is to become holy so that someone can imitate you. How do you feel knowing people will follow your example? Can you say, I wish everyone in this church spent their money the same way I spend my money. Can you say, I wish everyone in this church would do hospitality or respond in kindness when faced with anger like I do? I wish everyone in this church would value the corporate gathering on Sundays like I do. Someone in our church visited a, a mega church in our area before COVID descended upon us. And uh, he told me that the pastor was speaking through video, not live preaching, but speaking on a screen. And he was telling all the attendees present how important it was for them to be at church and make it a priority. Now remember, this is before COVID. And the guy's not there. <laughs> He's on a screen telling like, you need to be there. Follow my example on this screen. No, no, that's not walking well. I sing in church a certain way because I watched a mentor of mine sing. A pastor taught me, you sing out in church, Kyle. You send the wrong signal when you don't sing. It could be a signal that you're angry or distracted. Worse yet, it, it comes across as arrogant. And if you're not singing just because you don't like the song, that really does border on arrogance. And I said, I'll receive that. You don't need a position of influence to be an example. Like, well, if I get this position in the church, then I'll be... No, you be an example where you are. First, you need to find good models to imitate. Notice Paul's second movement here. You need to avoid imitating bad models. Every parent expresses this desire for their children, right? Paul expresses it for his sons and daughters in the faith. Notice verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now notice, this is the second time that the word walk has appeared. Paul said, walk like me, and then he said, do not walk like them. So what is he saying? They walk with a limp? I don't want you to walk like them, they walk with a limp? Or maybe Paul had a limp, maybe Paul was gangsta. And he's like, walk, walk with me. No, that's not what he's saying. You, you know what he's saying, using it metaphorically. Paul is simply repeating a command found in Deuteronomy 8 and in 1 Kings 2 and throughout the Proverbs. Walk in the ways of the Lord and do not walk in the ways of sinners. This goes all the way back to Genesis in the garden. 
You're either walking with God or walking with a serpent. When, ta- when Paul talks about bad models, he, first, you know what I do when I talk about bad models? Like I just did, I laugh and I trash them. When Paul talks about bad models, he weeps. There's absolutely no hint here of Paul saying, well, those non-believers are going to go to hell and good riddance. No Christian should ever entertain that kind of spirit toward the lost. In fact, the more you know about the coming judgment and the more you will be moved to compassion and urgency and prayer and outreach. Paul is painfully aware that the Philippians are exposed to a different company of mentors, models, and examples whose motives and behaviors contradict everything he has taught them. But you must read the verse and ask this question. Who are the enemies of the cross? Students of scripture over the centuries have reached different conclusions about the identity of these dangerous role models. Some say it's antinomians who use grace as a license to sin. Others say it's legalists, Judaizers, who give rules in addition to the gospel. In other words, a Jesus minus theology with one group and a Jesus plus theology with another group. We don't know who the enemies are because Paul doesn't call them out by name. D.A. Carson and O'Brien and others note that whoever these people are, they appear to be people who make some sort of profession of Christian faith. But in reality, they're enemies of the cross. They are deceivers and pretenders. They're claiming Christ, but they're actually enemies of Christ. And friend, let's just step back from that statement for a moment. Could it be that you think you are God's child, but you are really God's enemy? If you went out on the street and asked people, are you an enemy of God? Very few, if any, would say, you better believe it. Yes, I am one of God's enemies. No. The truth is, we are no more capable of judging our own relationship with God, apart from His Word, than a patient whose doctor says to him, you've got terminal cancer. Inoperable terminal cancer. And the patient says, but, but I feel great. I don't feel like I've got cancer. It can't be true. We are not the best judge of our condition. The divine diagnostician notes how these pretenders live and diagnoses them. Paul goes on to say that these pretenders are known for a particular set of values which are antithetical to Christian holiness. Paul is writing, perhaps dictating, and he says he's crying. Now, what is he writing? He's writing, these people are enemies of the cross. They're going to hell, and it makes them cry. Paul is a teary-eyed person. The word in the Greek means to weep audibly. Paul is a great weeper. He wept over those he taught and over those whom he rebuked. He had tears. Paul wept as he warned the Ephesian elders in the flock in Acts 20. Paul wept over the influence of false teachers in Romans 9. Paul wept as he expressed his loving concern for the wayward church of Corinth. But here in Philippians 3, it is the only place in the New Testament where Paul speaks of crying in the present tense. He's weeping as he writes. And 
This is heavy and complex. But God's sovereignty over evil does not make us tearless. It sustains us in our tears. God's sovereignty over evil does not make us tearless and hard. It sustains us in our tears. Never underestimate the power of tears. Tell your wayward child, I've wept for your salvation. Let your spouse see your tears. Your sin is crushing me. These bad models are known for four things. All found in the next verse. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Let's take them one at a time. First, their end is destruction. I mean, seek to be as emotionally complex as Paul. Embrace both tears and tough words. Because the world has never seen such a thing. They know anger without tears, or wimpy, teary talk avoiding sin, but not tears and truth. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're walking a tight rope over destruction. And it, it is falling. It's, it's, it's threads are crumbling. And without Christ, you're going to go to hell. And Christians don't laugh about that. Like, nobody's laughing here. Christians aren't laughing about that. We're broken about that. Their end is destruction. Secondly, their God is their belly. Now, the, the belly region, that starts at the neck and ends below the belt. Food, drink, sex, emotional experiences. This is belly living, belly worshiping. Living for pleasure, organizing your life around that idol. And Paul uses this word metaphorically to refer to unrestrained, sensual, physical, forbidden desires. Don't race to grab all the gusto, drink all the beer, experience all the pleasures, or visit all the erotic vacation spots. Those diversions are ever so brief and are never as satisfying as you hoped they would be. Don't be found trying to chew the taste out of pleasures that don't last. Now, that, that, that's in a non-Christian. In a Christian, the belly temptation may be towards sexual sin. It may be towards gossiping. In another, it may be towards lying in bed instead of being along with God in the morning. It's belly sins. Thirdly, they glory in their shame. Does this not describe our culture? They're bragging about things they should be apologizing for. Having parades for things they should have funerals for. Proud of their perversions. National coming out day last week. Hashtag shout your abortion. Trending on Twitter. As we often see in our culture, even though sex before marriage is prevalent and considered normal, it's still harmful. It's still shameful. Even though we can call a strip club a gentleman's club, it's still disgraceful and depraved. Don't follow examples of those who glory in things like sexual sin, greed, disrespect, and laziness. Even though marriages break down because money matters more than a sacred covenant, resist that shameful pattern. Even though laziness is viewed as a personality trait and is displayed regularly in sitcoms and makes us laugh, it's wrong. In Proverbs, laziness is wickedness. 
not something to be accepted. Even though pornography is present and accessible, it doesn't mean you should participate in shameful, secretive works of darkness. By participating in such practices, you not only deaden your own soul, but you perpetuate more sin because your sin affects others. Whenever you sin, whenever you sin, you are hugging, embracing, kissing something that calls Jesus to die. And we need to look at it like that. Fourthly, with minds set on earthly things. Tony Morita, one of my one of my models or mentors from a distance, Tony Morita said this in referring to these minds set on earthly things. He said, they just get excited about worldly things. They aren't captured by Christ, his cross, and the resurrection. They are the types who prefer the Xbox and social media to thorough Bible study and courageous mission. Don't follow this pattern. Don't think you will become like Jesus by watching reality TV or listening to a talk radio constantly. Don't live for things of this earth. If you set your mind on things of earth, you're putting your hope in things that are broken. Don't be worldly. And now you say, I'll just answer the emails before you send them. Now, Kyle, I don't, I don't, hold on. I don't see the word worldliness anywhere. You're right. You didn't see the word worldliness. But you almost saw it. Their minds are set on earthly things. Now, that's almost the definition of worldliness. Because worldliness means that a person has come to be at home in this world. To find their place of belonging in this world. To think like this world, to act like this world, to desire the things this world desires. And that is the problem with American Christianity. Paul is writing to Christians and he's saying don't follow these examples. They are literally captivated by the things of earth. Materialism is their highest religion. Fashion is their sacred liturgy. Celebrities are their priestly guides. Possessions are their greatest reward. And earth is their heaven. They are earth dwellers. They are earth oriented. They are earth bound. And Paul is saying to us, Christians, Christians resisting worldliness does not just happen. It takes resolve. It takes a dogged refusal not to abandon the word of God. A determination to say, I will not imitate people whose father is Satan. I will imitate those who are in the family of God. There's good models, there's bad models. And then notice Paul's third movement here. There's coming a day when you will no longer need models. Notice verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. So notice what Paul's doing here. Paul first directs our, our eyes in one direction towards mentors worth mimicking. And then he directs our eyes in another direction towards dangerous examples who lead to hell. And finally he points our gaze upward to heaven. He says, don't forget you're a citizen of heaven. Now by saying that, Paul implies here that there are those who do not have citizenship in heaven. 
Universalism has no room in this verse. They may be traveling under the passport claiming Christ's kingdom, but their conduct fits more naturally into a city that is anything but celestial. Paul does not here draw a direct connection, although I think he could and I would if I were, if I were writing this, but I'm not. And Paul's smarter than I am, and he's definitely under the inspiration of God here. Because I would have drawn a connection between the fact that we belong to a heavenly kingdom and there, it comes with obligations and coming upon us because we belong to that heavenly kingdom. And I would have went to town on that. But Paul proceeds to build his case on the hope that such a kingdom supplies. The hope. Sam Gordon writes, You live on planet Earth, but you belong to another world. You set up your tent here, but you don't put down roots here. Christians are not vagabonds without a home. We're not fugitives on the run from home. We are pilgrims traveling home. And homesickness helps. That longing you have for another country. C.S. Lewis points out that if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were those who thought most about the next world. And he, then he flips it. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they've become so ineffective in this world. He continues, verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like Jesus' glorious body? Now, why will we need a new body in the resurrection? You ever thought about that? I always think it's funny how men and women look at themselves in the mirror differently. Women look in the mirror and like, oh man, I'm, I'm so ugly. I need a new body. Men look in the mirror and like, mm, this is perfection. This is, I do. I look in the mirror, you're like, you're, you're 85 pounds, Kyle. I look, like, I see Vin Diesel. When I look at, I see Vin Diesel looking back at me. I think, this is perfect. This cannot be improved upon. Well, we all need to get a clear view of ourselves. I don't care how good your body looks. It's imperfect and you need a new body. You say, wait a minute, I put 40 hours a week in on this body. You need a new body. When you die, the shell of your physical body is separated from who you truly are. Your body dies because it's been exposed to the curse of sin, but your soul is just beginning to see your eternal destiny. You possess a deathless spirit. A deathless spirit. It cannot be put to death. Now your body can be put to death, but not your spirit. And the change of body will be necessary because our weak mortal body, I don't care what they look like now, our weak mortal bodies are insufficient to receive and participate in the glory that we will see in all of eternity standing before the throne of God. We have only part of redemption while we are here. The soul is regenerated. Newly born. But the body is not. The resurrection will be to the body what regeneration is to the soul. The resurrection will be to the body what regeneration is to the soul. Now what would these new bodies look like? Because I'm looking to be ripped in the next life. Ripped. I don't have time to do it now, but I'm, I'm going to be ripped in the next one. All right, what, what will new bodies be like? Okay, Christ's resurrected body 
is the prototype of what awaits each of us. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also, we shall soon bear the image of the man of heaven. You will possess a body that is incapable of deterioration. A perfect vehicle for your deathless spirit. You don't have the perfect vehicle for your deathless spirit now. Because your body's not deathless. Your, your body can die. But soon you will have a deathless spirit in a deathless body. A perfect vehicle for your deathless spirit. And by the way, there's a word here that's very important. Transformed. You will receive a transformed body. So I joke about a ripped body. It's, God isn't going to discard your body. He's going to transform your body. Your current body. So in that transformation, Jesus Christ will create and craft. Just think of the artistic ability. Create and craft again. How? Paul writes, exerting the power that he has. Notice the end of verse 12. By the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now this week I must... I was in building meetings here for like, I don't know, I don't want to exaggerate, like 120 hours this week, all right? And I'm like, how am I going to get these people to understand this verse? My sheep, my people. How am I going to get them to understand? How am I going to get them to understand 12B? And I feel like people in the medical field may grasp this better than most. One medical doctor wrote this. The body contains perhaps as many as one trillion cells. Now let that sink in. The body contains perhaps as many as one trillion cells. Each one of them carries out thousands of different chemical reactions. Thus, a resurrection would require phenomenal power to energize life into all of these individual cells. How many? One trillion of them. But it would have to do it in such a way that specialized nerve cells could resume their unique function. And heart cells continue their unique function, and blood cells and bone cells and so on. At death, he writes, all these cells not only halt, but they crumble into microscopic dust. Thus, a bodily resurrection would require that thousands of processes in trillions of cells must be put back together and then restarted all at once. This would require not just incredible power, but also incredible knowledge. Because it's still a mystery to us how the cells in our bodies interact. And Jesus Christ will have to know all of the information in trillions of cells in each of our bodies and then have the power to refashion all of them and then restart all of us in a split second. And he has the power to do it. This week I was reading a bit after Ian Murray. And he wrote about the death of this great Scottish preacher, Robert Bruce. If I could roll the R, I would, but I, I can't. I wish I could. I was born in the South. I can't mimic uh, accents at all. Robert, Robert Bruce. Bruce was now some 75 years of age. His wife had been dead for several years and he was ready to go home. 
He would say to his friends and family, I wonder why God is keeping me here so long. Well, time passed, and eventually he was having breakfast with his daughter Martha. And she was about to prepare him another egg. Bruce loved eggs. Martha was about to prepare him another egg when he said, Hold, daughter, hold. My master calleth me. He then asked that the house Bible, the Geneva version, be brought. And unable to read it, he said, Cast me up the eighth of Romans. And he began to recite much of the second half of the chapter until he came to the last two verses. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said, set my finger on these words. She did. Then he said, looked at his children. He said, God be with you, my children. I have breakfasted with you and shall sup with the Lord Jesus this night. I die believing these words. Faith Family Church, that's the day Bruce no longer needed models. Because the Creator fully and finally molded him into the perfect model. The image of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.